0: Welcome to another episode of the On The Way podcast, a uh, podcast centred on a non dualistic, compassionate, open-minded view of the Christian faith. Uh, my name is Dom Fay. Our two regulars join us uh, today. Peter Cat. thank you for, for your time.
1: Thanks, Dom. Great to be with you again. And uh, Sue Wilton,
0: good to have you on the podcast again, Sue. Good to be back. And uh, our, our guest today, the fourth voice on the podcast, is a good friend of mine and a uh, And quite a profound man as well, a uh, person who has worked as a a youth worker, a chaplain and now a counsellor in various forms. Jim Sherman joins the podcast. Thanks, Jim.
2: Thanks, Tom. That's about 80% correct. (laughs) (laughs) The the profound comment, we'll let the (laughs) listeners be the judge.
0: Um, Let's just start perhaps because we we want to, you've worked a fair bit with people, marginalised people, um, Jim, and and we'll, we'll explore that throughout the podcast. But to begin with, I guess a little bit of a background as to, to who you are and how you got where you, you got. If you can do that in a minute or so, that'd, uh, oh, <laughs> that'd be yes. great.
2: tough Tough work. Oh, <laughs> uh, Look, um, uh, I guess I'd, I'd describe myself as someone who um, has managed to make a living out of having conversations. Um, <laughs> yep. So, you know, um, th- this is another example today. Uh, but look, I um, my background was that, that coming out of high school, um, I was a... Long-haired evangelical, um, you know, determined to look more and more like Jesus as as physically as possible. Um, You know, uh, with the fire of the gospel in my belly, I sort of started as a youth worker, and you know, studied the Bible college thing, and uh, you know, did all that kind of pathway. But over the years, um, and we might discuss this story further. um, Yeah, I found a a different side to the gospel, and, and that led me on a journey. Um, away from traditional church structures into um, more grassroots ministry, um, doing church in homes as well as uh, into the profession of counselling. Um, so these days I'm a, a full-time counsellor and uh, yeah, that, that's kind of led me to work with a whole range of different people. Uh, and I think that's uh, 55 seconds. That's so, pretty good. Now,
0: yeah. stop the stopwatch. You've, you've come in well there. Yeah. Um, now, you you are currently lecturing in counselling at the University of Queensland. Yeah. But, but before this job, hmm. you had uh, quite an interesting um, position. Can you just tell us a bit about that?
2: Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, so for about the last four years, uh, until I've been working at the university, I was employed as a torture and trauma counsellor. Um, which is always, uh, you know, something that lines up dinner parties when people ask you what you're doing. <laughs> um, but my specialty was actually working with asylum seekers. So I was working within the uh, Australian asylum seeker system, um, working with people that fled uh, refugee-related trauma from their home countries and working as a counsellor there um, to help support people uh, through those past experiences, but then also through some of their current difficulties, um, which are well known. Yeah, And uh, I
0: think that that really sets up, I guess, the framework of what we are uh, Uh, hoping to discuss today obviously um peter and sue as well with your work here at the cathedral with uh, not just asylum seekers but but many um many marginalized groups of people we're hoping i guess to to see how christianity looks a bit different when you view it from the margins instead of the perspective most of us usually view it from, which is our comfortable suburban middle-class homes. Um, And, Jim, you did make the comment before that it is perhaps unusual uh, for four white people to sit around talking about being marginalised.
2: Yeah, look, and to be very honest, I I feel, and and on behalf of the people I know, I feel... uh, a a deep sense of inadequacy to even address this question. Uh, I think it's almost a little bit unfair for me to sit here and and talk about being marginalised when, in in actual fact, my experience of life has been from a great deal of privilege. Um, I suppose the perspective that I want to offer, though, is, is more a journey perspective um so so i'm not speaking on behalf of people that would uh, sit in the margins of our society and would see themselves sitting there but my perspective is on someone who who has journeyed to that area Mm. um and who has uh, had a chance to rethink life and rethink faith from that position um so certainly i don't want to uh, present myself as someone that's speaking on behalf of marginalized people i speak on behalf of um people that uh, i guess have Um, being shaped by the views that don't often get the central place in society that uh, and in the church uh, that we have so we we will
0: delve into i guess um how and why you did uh meet these marginalized people Mm. in your in your work and and what you learnt what you've i guess what you can bring back to it to us um Mm. and uh you know peter obviously you uh we, we haven't discussed at great length on this podcast yet, but you have worked uh, quite extensively with, with refugees, particularly in the Sanctuary Movement, which got some press um, a few years ago. It might be good to, to start off to just explain how, how you came into that, that sort of work.
1: Um, through my interest in social justice, and um, eventually our Archbishop appointed me to a group called the Australian Church's Refugee Task Force, and then I became the chair of that group and the sanctuary movement simply um grew out of the desire to keep people safe and to work out what does keeping people safe look like in the face of a hostile government and so that was that was our offer of sanctuary was um, uh, simply to try and people keep people from being re-traumatized by being sent back to Nauru um, I guess the concept of sanctuary is a much broader concept and one that um, we try to offer all the time. Um, The cathedral's doors are open and anyone is allowed to come in and they will all receive a welcome. We have homeless people living on the site uh, who are real people to us. They have real names, they have real stories and their lives are... A constant challenge to the way we see the world. They mm. constantly, and I think that's that's the beauty of the voice from the margins is that destabilizes those of us if we're prepared to listen. Those of us who are at the centre are constantly destabilised. Um, I guess my favourite story about being of how that works is in in my former cathedral in Grafton. We had a guy called Robert who was homeless. Well, actually, he wasn't. He had a home. It was the front veranda of one of our cottages, and um, Robert had this amazing life where he had it all sorted. Um, he had his routine of asking people for a cup of coffee down the street, and he slept on the the veranda of the of the cottages, uh, and. Felt safe there because it was a church and, after all, churches are safe places to be and that's exactly what the homeless people here in Brisbane tell us. Um, and one of, the constant, um, one of the constant dynamics in Grafton was we had people coming off the street and beginning to lecture us about the fact that we allowed Robert to sleep on the veranda and there were those, there were those who thought it was you know, sort of untidy, and that uh, he was diminishing the place by his presence. But there was also the group that were coming in to lecture us to tell us that we needed to do something about his plight. And um, you know, my response was always, um, "Have you have you talked to Robert? Because that's his name, uh, and he's very congenial. He'll talk to you if you go and talk to him. And I think you'll find." that if you talk to Robert, that his life is sorted and that he doesn't want to be housed. And in fact, Robert was for a while housed in an aged care facility and his health declined and eventually he went back on the streets and he got as well as, as, he, as, as ever he was going to. And so one of the challenges for us uh, was that he kept on challenging all of our middle class expectations. Now, we had all these expectations about how, what a house looked like, what uh, a fruitful life looked like, what it meant to be gainfully employed, um, and he had a life that was completely different to what we middle-class people would expect. And so he was a constant reminder that there's another, that there are other ways to live in community. And when he died, he was buried from the cathedral. This is a few years after I left, and the cathedral was packed. That's the impact he made.
0: Mm. Mm. And I know Sue that that through being here at the cathedral, and uh, also in other realms, you you uh, gravitate as well towards working with the marginalised. Um, uh, I I know you've uh, you take part in a prison ministry. Um, what have these things? What have working with marginalised people? What has it taught you about your faith? Obviously, as a as a woman on a long faith journey through numerous mm. churches and denominations, what has that taught you? That part of it. I think when you go in the the stories, I, I guess
3: one is it's educated me a lot about the complexity of of the issues facing um people, particularly the women I see in prison. Um, you know, the, the, the total injustice of some systems that work against the, the poorest, the people who are, are most at risk. That you know, the women I, I see so many of the women have the 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 whole three of um of uh, abuse issues of drug addiction of mental health issues you know and um an awful lot of violence that they're having they've been fleeing from in various um sections of their life and and trying to to package see all that and and you can see why they come to the place they get to you know it's i guess that's a challenge as you as you listen to the story, you think you know you put yourself in their shoes and go. I think I would have been there too, um, and then to work out when you, you see the struggle I have just with trying to find safe housing or when they when they do get out, trying not to return to some of the same relationships which had been so destructive for them, um, but the pressures that are financially that are economically and um are on them to to actually just slide back to the same way of being i guess the the challenge for me is to actually work out in amongst the way that we try to um, put systems in place to help people, which ones are actually helpful, which ones are actually doing damage and which ones are just not listening to the situation um, that these women have found themselves in.
0: Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, even hearing you speak then, uh, I uh, and, and you there as well, Peter, about uh, the, the homeless person in Grafton, it is, it is a wake-up call to me to show me just how little... I know about the complexity of these different ways of being, these different ways of living. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I suppose that is what we want to delve into, is how does this faith look different when it's viewed from a different perspective? Uh, This is a general question, Jim, uh, but but I'm going to start with it. How has working with uh, asylum seekers and other marginalized people, how
2: has that changed your perspective on the Christian faith? Oh, deeply, <laughs> would, would be my first answer. Uh, I'll, I'll probably liken it to a little analogy. Um, when, when you think about if you've ever travelled overseas um, and you've uh, gone outside of um, your normal culture, your normal country into a new place that uh, does things differently, you get absorbed into that new way of working. And you come back and you have this strange experience where you have uh, expanded and yet the people around you are just the same. Um, other people have had it if they've ever, you know, moved away from a place that they've lived for a long time and, and returned home. And um, there's a lovely quote about traveling, I can't remember um, who actually said it, but the idea is almost like your piece has grown outside the puzzle and it no longer fits. Um, and so you go to, you know, um, Southeast Asia and, and you travel around and you come back and you try to describe it to people. Uh, and and you show photos, but you can't. The photos aren't big enough. They don't capture, um, you know, the noise or the scope. Um, you know, you try to describe what it's like to eat a, a Vietnamese bowl of pho, and you you know try to describe the aromatics of the of the stock and the the silken texture of the noodles. But it, you can't get people to smell that. You can't get people to to feel it in their mouths. And, and that's the experience of of journeying to meet and i think what um uh uh, sue and peter have so beautifully explained and to listen to go and meet and to listen with people that have had an experience of life that has been pushed to the margins um jean vanier who's um, a a renowned um, catholic priest uh, done most of his work with people with a disability um, likens it to being marginalized yourself Um, is that you actually re-enter mainstream communities, including churches, and your peace has grown outside the puzzle. And and so you start seeing things differently. You start hearing words that don't quite seem right to you anymore.
0: It it is something I suppose most people uh, like to avoid. It's why most people, you know, keep their heads up when they walk past a homeless person on the street. It's why, you know, most people decide to travel to... Uh, first world economies rather than third world economies because they're probably somewhere in the subconscious aware that disruption is going to meet them if they, if they engage and not many people want disruption.
2: It's not very comfortable. No, it's an excellent point actually and, and the, the one of walking past someone on the street is, is a great one. Um, the, the word compassion, um, which we would normally rate highly, you know, comes from the words with suffering. And the reason that we, um, you know, walk past someone, set our gaze on the middle distance and and kind of keep that steady step is because that if we look, if we know that we are going to look into the face of another person, if we're going to see their eyes, that person is going to make a, a pull on us and a call on us. And so it's not actually a lack of caring. It's not a lack of compassion. In fact, it's almost too much compassion we know this dangerous side to ourselves as human beings that if we look at that it will call us to change it will make a demand upon our lives and i suppose ultimately uh not many people are actively
0: seeking change the status quo is quite a comfortable place to to live um peter what is the why is it so important that we do look to, to hear the stories of marginalized people, to connect with them, to see outside of the sphere we are often so, or bubble even, that we are often so firmly. And why is it so vital that we do that?
1: Um, it's a, it helps the church to remember why it exists. Um, there's a sort of a glib saying that the church exists for others and um, there's a profound truth in it. Uh, and it's the people who are not like us who we most need to be in contact with because the, being human and being a, per, being a person, uh, the, be, becoming a person is, is the product of all our relationships. And if if all our relationships are very similar, then our, the, the, who we become is going to be reduced in its complexity and its beauty and its magnificence. And so the more people we interact with the 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 bigger we become. Mm. And uh, I think expanding consciousness is one of the calls of the gospel is to see see more things, to see things more clearly, to see that which uh, to which we are blind, you know, all the metaphors about blind being blind even though you think you see and it's it's the people who come to us or we go to who live in a completely different space to us who help us see uh, things with fresh eyes so in grafton it was robert who got a whole bunch of people to see just how middle class they were how middle class their gospel aspirations were how comfortable they were and how that needed to be disrupted Mm. his simple presence once people actually, you know, because he would then join us for coffee on Sundays and stuff like that. And I've seen the same dynamic at work here. You know, there was a guy who was worshipping with us for a while called Raymond. And to see Raymond kneeling at the altar rail uh, with his filthy hands, taking communion by with a whole bunch of people who... Through his presence, had overcome their fear of him, um, and you know who who didn't dip. You know they 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 took the same chalice. Um, is a hugely transformative experience, and you just can't you can't talk you can't talk that tr- those acts of transformation. Um, And we become expanded people, the community becomes expanded, we learn to see stuff that before we were absolutely blind to. And our stereotypes of our our clever techniques of stereotyping others in order to dismiss them, uh, those stereotypes just disappear as we get to know individuals because they become exceptions to the stereotype the first time and then the stereotype starts to dissolve as we meet more and more homeless people say and so you know i remember one parishioner said to me um oh this guy is different to those of his ilk and eventually and that was the beginning of the journey to realizing that they're all different to those of his ilk there is no ilk the ilk doesn't exist the stereotype is not true because these are all individuals with complex stories And there are no simple fixes, and often it's not a fix that they're after. And it teaches a community to realize that the most precious thing that we can offer is the gift of human community. At its heart, that's what people most need, is simply to know that they belong.
0: I think it, it ties back. Jim to something we were chatting about just before the podcast which was you you were talking about the importance of diversity in community and embracing diversity um you know not having a a community full of people who are all on the same salary in the same sort of house you know going through the exact same situations because as nice as that can be it it perhaps limits your view limits your experience limits your knowledge um would you agree with that
2: oh absolutely and But I say that there's not much naturally that encourages us to do that. Um, Normally, we will gravitate to people who are like us. And again, that's not a um, criticism. It's not something evil. It's just something human. Um, Where faith has a perspective, I think, is the radical example of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, And we were talking before about, you know, what... You know what do we normally do as a church with people who are on the margins, with people who are, um, you know, poor or might be homeless or whatever? We we usually run a service, and that's difficult because when we read the gospels, we actually don't see Jesus feeding the poor. Um, we see Jesus eating with the poor. We see Jesus eating with the uh, the, the outcasts, uh, and so I think that's um, uh, that was a. a um, theme for me, as I said, that was that was quite transformative. And uh, I mentioned before my journey from um, being within a very much a, a mainstream Christian setting. One of the turning points for me, um, which relates to the story that you've just shared, Peter, was uh, that thought that, that Jesus didn't feed the poor, Jesus ate with the poor. And so with kind of a, a great deal of fervour, one day I um, was walking through Central Station um, just down the road from where we're sitting now and um, there was a gentleman sitting on the um, kind of grubby tiles there um, with his cardboard sign out asking for money and, um, you know, had the, had the long mangy beard and the, you know, scraggly grey hair and the, the smelly clothes. And um, so I kind of took this um, lesson seriously and thought, well, how about I sit down and, and introduce myself and we had a discussion about a whole range of different things in life and I'd given him five bucks or something um and at one point he said to me um you know geez mate you're you're a pretty fair guy you know um, I, I, I like you know the way that you sit here you're not just like all these other rich people running rushing past in rush hour that, that aren't looking at me and then he said something which Nearly made me um, terrified that he fit the exact stereotype that you were talking about before. He said, "If I ever get my hands on some good drugs, you're the kind of guy I'd share them with." (laughs) Um, And so then I'm kind of looking at my five dollars there, thinking, "Oh God, I've made a mistake." You know, Um, haven't I learned growing up that that all these homeless people are, you know, uh, miserable drug addicts? Um, But sure enough, uh, about that moment, um, a a young woman arrived, dressed beautifully in a in a business suit and she handed him kind of a a bottle of chocolate milk and a um enormous one of the big oversized muffins it wasn't heroin um but but he was as good as his word um and so he dug his kind of mangy nicotine stained fingers into this muffin and and broke it and and gave half of me and and then um lifted this bottle of chocolate milk up to his um you know uh dust encrusted beard and and took a sip and then handed it to me um and i don't know um uh reverend what your theology of communion is but i have to say that that meal was one of the most real presence um uh, of jesus christ that i've ever felt um and there was this this thin wafer um between heaven and earth between human and human um that that just opened up um at at that moment and i said "Well, well when we do this to the least of these who do this with jesus jesus is really present um and and that gives us a call to go beyond the boundaries that we normally set it's uh that's
0: an amazing story it's
2: it's uh it it
0: does feel like base human nature to to seek comfort to seek uh security and and safety and um I'm interested to know, and maybe I'll I'll, uh, throw this question at you, Sue. The the first day that perhaps you went into the prison um, for the prison ministry, Mm. when you knew you were encountering people you perhaps hadn't really encountered before, Mm. there must have been nerves, apprehension, um, an element of fear? Uh, I think there was
3: an element of horror because you go through all these gates and there's all the razor wire. And and there's this awful feeling of, of being stuck in there and that's even knowing that I get to go home and and these women didn't. Um, so it was more the horrors that got me, I guess. But then what did get me more was when a couple of conversations I had, I think one early one I had um, with a young woman and we sat there and we were talking about faith and life and meaning. And we, we would have talked for half an hour or so and I forgot I was in a prison, you know, just was enjoying this conversation. And I thought I could have been at a local coffee shop having a conversation like this with mm. this woman. And it was such a, a, a rich conversation. And then you sort of wake up and realise, oh, they're about to come in and bring the medication in and I have to get out. And, and they have to all go back to their cells so that they can have be counted. And 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 she's someone just who we just shared you know very human moment together where where it was it just could have happened anywhere and i had to remind myself that that was her story now that where she was um and and that line between our lives you know that now things can be so different for some people and you don't know what experiences have led them to be in there always um, and and that adds, I guess, a level of horror as well. That you know, in the in me walking out freely and knowing that that she was bedding down in in a very small cell. Mm.
0: I, I think um, a common theme throughout all mm-hmm. veins of Christianity mm-hmm. is a longing for transformation in one form or another. People desperately hoping or wanting to to find themselves moved to maybe be more loving or more Christ like. Mm-hmm and from the stories you've all shared it seems like encountering those in the margins is exactly how you do that which makes it somewhat astonishing how rarely it is done um what do you think it's just the discomfort of that peter do you think do you think that's what's standing in people's way of doing it
1: well, certainly it is it is uncomfortable um very uncomfortable but um that's how transformation happens also we just have um such limited opportunity in um, this day and age we've you know the opportunity these days is to get in your car go direct to the place where you want to be um uh, you know if we're not walking around we don't have the opportunity of chance encounters um our society has become very stratified because of the way suburbs are structured um, it's like you know, southeast queensland has the uh, highest concentration of uh, aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the country in terms of number per square kilometer if you like um, but there was a survey done not so long ago that revealed that um, a huge percentage of the white population admitted that they had never met an Indigenous person. And the way Brisbane is structured, for instance, you could believe that there aren't many Indigenous people around because we all live in these little spheres of, of life and influence that actually keep us separated from one another. And uh, I think one of the gifts the church offers is, is the opportunity to be part of a community uh, that doesn't have to be people like us. And one of the things I'm constantly impressed by on a Sunday is, and a few times in homilies in the last little while I've pointed out to the congregation, you know, where, where else would you be with this mixture of humanity? our workplaces do not look like this our social clubs do not look like this our churches are probably one of the only places where intentionally we get ourselves mixed with this amazing complexity of humanity the opportunity to actually hear the stories of people who are not like us and so i think for a lot of people it's simply the lack of opportunity and then you know, for for the great bulk of people, the idea that they have to intentionally go out and find an experience of the other is a huge challenge and a threat um, the church the church, if you like, makes it much easier because you you're there and you have to rub shoulders with these people and suddenly it's all quite easy you're not and it's like if you come to the cathedral precinct and you go for a walk, um, you know Ben, one of our um, homeless guys who has a home because he's he's got his his spot he's likely to have a chat with you and so you don't even have to go out of your way to have a chat with a homeless person because you walk past ben will say hello how are you going and you can stop and say i'm doing all right how are you doing much less threatening than thinking i need to encounter a homeless person you know set out for a walk or you know intentionally go to the valley to find one um, so i think I think church is uh, one of the last places left where you can actually get mixed. and
0: Yeah, but perhaps a large part of this problem is the othering that we've spoken about on the podcast. That, you know, instead of seeing, for example, in your case, to these prisoners as, as people, you see them as a group of, of people as prisoners. You know, instead of seeing a, a homeless person and hearing their individual story, you just group it as homeless people, and, and I know that is uh, a large part of the issue with refugees and asylum seekers. Jim is that yeah. that generally they've just been seen as a group, not not individual people. They've almost had their humanity stripped from them in the way in which they've been othered. In what ways? Because being a, a torture and trauma counsellor, the stories you would hear would, I would imagine, you would be in tears regularly. In what ways hearing did hearing these stories um,
2: change you? How long have you got? Um, <laughs> I, I think that um, there's a lot of things about that question uh, that almost need unpacking. Um, firstly, the idea that um, the, the, that I would be in tears regularly. Um, the those stories are. Um, in the same moment, um horrific and inspiring. And I don't mean horrific one minute and inspiring the next. I mean in the same moment. Um I think that not not that there's anything um virtuous about suffering uh in itself. Um nevertheless for the people that I talk to are uh, they, they are all um just by definition stories of survival. Um, just because that person is there with me. Um and so there is um, it's easy to reduce that story to one thing or the other. Um, however, there's, um, there's a whole other range of things that go along with the complexity of that um, in terms of that, that being also a story of survival. Um, how it changes you? Um, well, uh, I think, as I said before, it opens you up to a whole other experience of life. Uh, I worked with a lot of young people um, who were categorized as unaccompanied minors. So people under the age of 18 who had to flee without the presence of a parent. Um, so I'd be hearing these stories often of um, often of young men, um, often probably 16, 17 years of age, but sometimes even 14 or 15. And, and the contrast um, was quite striking i would often find myself thinking about what i was doing at 16 years of age um which was largely you know thinking about my hair um (laughs) and contrasting that with these young people who have often um bore the brunt of survival for their family um may have had to be breadwinners uh, may have had to um take on a huge amount of responsibility and leadership for a young age and you'd find these old souls in young bodies um, and it, and it forced me to um, yeah reconsider questions of responsibility of meaning of um, self-centeredness versus other centeredness um, just by the example of, of these young uh, men mainly um, the the other thing that I think um, is really striking about uh, the work that I had the privilege of doing was, um, the way in which you find this common ground, um, the way in which the, that, that experience of someone that seems to be so different to you turns out to, to be not so different or even, um, different and yet understandable. Um, I worked with a, a woman, um, for many years who, who had such a striking difference in her life experience, she was um, stateless, meaning that the the country that she was born in didn't recognise her um, as a citizen. Um, you know, she never had a birth certificate, um, which you think, well, big deal. But think about all the places in your life where you need a birth certificate, when you want to get a driver's license, when you want to get a Medicare card, um, wherever you need to be, you need to be recognized. And so her whole life was a life of, of begging for her existence, of arriving in a new town, instantly bribing the neighbors so that she could stay in this place. Um, and I, um, and she, the word that she would use to describe her life was unlucky right? Unlucky. I'm, I'm an unlucky person um, because I am this and that and the other. I was born into this ethnic group. I was um, born into this family. I was born a woman. I was, I'm unlucky in all these um, circumstances. Uh, it made me realize how lucky I was right that i got a certificate just for being born i mean talk about gen y pats on the back i mean (laughs) like uh, how entitled do you get when you get a certificate just for being born um and and yet through that friendship um she would often um, refer to me as brother um and uh and while and and you know all my counselling students will if if they ever listen to this will sort of um you know uh, come to my ethics course next week and question me about boundaries but that that term brother right um, and I would call her mother at times because that's that's what she embodied in so so many ways um, and so this idea of meeting people across differences what you describe Peter as being in the the same room with people that you would otherwise not have anything to do with. It's not community. um, It's not friendship. It's more like family. Um, And that is a, a powerful thing that in the New Testament, we rarely see the church defined in institutional terms it's defined in relational terms is family sometimes it is even described as this of the same body um and i think that's a a deep change that comes with me and and even again some of my discomfort about talking about marginalized people and unmarginalized people um rather than brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. um mothers and children yeah um which is which is what we can become
0: well i suppose it is um it is quite easy, if you do live in that bubble in the suburbs, to to perhaps have your opinion about asylum seekers. But if you were, as you have done, Jim, to sit down and hear these stories and, and mm. see these human beings, I mean, you would imagine that if anybody did that, within half an hour, they would be... They give me a placard. I'm protesting.
2: Well, I think um I think what they would protest and and look uh, without going into the politics of it all the the question about people movement globally is complex. Um I think we um uh, I don't want to reduce a, a policy statement to something as um simplistic and unworkable as open borders. What I think they would protest is is a uh, policy of deterrence. And I think if we ever um uh hear the word deterrence we should prick our ears up because implicitly what a policy of deterrence means is that we're going to treat one group of people poorly so poorly so violently that it will stop another group of people doing something okay and that's what our, our policy has been built on and that's not a politically controversial statement mm-hmm. um is that both parties have chosen a both major parties in australia have chosen a, a policy of deterrence um, morally it's a very interesting position to take that we will deliberately be cruel to one group of people now it's not to say that it doesn't work i have two children i'm sure if i beat up one of them to deter the other one from doing something it would work um, and i don't think that's the question but when you actually meet people who have deliberately been um, hurt being deliberately kept in limbo for long periods of time um, deliberately stripped of their identity to be given boat numbers um, and being referred to by that, um, deliberately being arbitrarily and indefinitely t- detained, um, when you get to meet those people, you, you would start to think that, hang on, there's something that's not quite right about this Um We've seen in recent times uh, the um, response to the Don Dale Detention Centre um, in the Northern Territory, which was also under a mandate of deterrence. That's another example of, of what the, the necessary end of, of that moral step. Um, so I think that would be something that a lot of people, when they're confronted with that, knowing these stories, would respond to. I suppose every
0: time you hear these these stories, you um, hear stories of suffering, of marginalization, of, of, of pain. Your concept of God, this is something you've mentioned on the podcast before. So your your concept of God gets bigger. It's almost like God gets bigger with every story that you you do here. Um, and then you can imagine that if you live in a, a small bubble, you can have quite a small God. Yeah. Um, is, has that been your experience? Would you say that God is continually every time you hear another one of these stories, Sue? That 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 God just grows and grows from it.
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, we all have our cultural blinkers, you know, and there's some things, and that's not something we beat ourselves up about. It's just what we're born with. We have our, and, and some parts, I mean, particularly growing up in Brisbane, I think we have quite strong cultural blinkers. I know in northern suburbs, we were the most monocultural group growing up, you know, and, and the schools that I've taught at and been involved with have, have been you know, really um, homogenous as a group. So you you, you do have very strong um, blinkers in place that you don't even know what you don't know, and so and that goes for Christian faith and theology as well. That that you actually, when you encounter someone, um, f- someone either from another faith or from your own faith, who's grown up in a different cultural place then you, than you find something new that you've never experienced before and never seen before and never even thought didn't have the thoughts to think you know Mm. um and and that's about that expansion of of god and, uh, and understanding of god
0: so peter should everyone who is hearing this and feeling some sense of motivation should you sign up to a homeless kitchen i mean you you said you can find it at a church but but is this something really actually worth seeking in any way that you can find it is it is it that essential to to faith to to flourishing life
1: I think it's essential to our humanity is to, to really um, immerse ourselves in, in the depth of what it is to be human, to, experience, to have the human experience, and for that to uh, radicalise us or, as you said, disrupt us. Uh, I think that that's where we discover the gift of life for ourselves. Um, I think many people um, run the risk of living a life that's so comfortable that they get to the end of it and think, well, what was that? Um, and, and to seek out I think we should be seeking out experiences of difference um, certainly hearing stories that will transform us you know, a few years ago SBS had that marvellous program you know, go back to where you came from and, and most of the people who got to live beside or talk to someone from you know, say, a refugee or an asylum seeker most of those people were transformed in some way um, not necessarily radicalized, but most of them had their horizons broadened. Um, in the church, we've started, um, m- many of our theologues these days spend time in um, the Holy Land as part of their formation program, and you know the great bulk of them go, go there with a sense of excitement that they're going to go to the Sea of Galilee and stand on the Mount of Olives and you know sort of see the stuff that Jesus where Jesus did the stuff Um, my experience listening to them is most of them come back uh, radicalized as to this Palestinian situation and um, because you know it it stops being a theoretical thing and it becomes you know the the Palestinians are Christians Uh, many of them work at the college Um, and that those people learn a lot about life and what the faith means in a different context for a group of people who aren't comfortable middle class, and the faith becomes alive for them, and they become enlivened. And so I think, I think we we give ourselves the gift of humanity by actually seeking out um, difference and trying to transfer. So it's not just about going to a, a homeless um a street van and handing out coffee with the idea that oh that's going to give me an experience um hopefully it also leads to the radicalisation of the population so that we work out ways that we have a different approach you know there are like there are cities 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 that are now um housing everybody because it's actually a smarter and cheaper thing to do but to get to that point, those cities have obviously had to have their citizens learn a very different lesson about stereotypes and people and what it is to be human. And um, so, hopefully, you know, my 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 motive for getting people to get out and do that sort of stuff is that they'll become radicalized and the whole of society will get transformed. So it's not just about it's not about person, just about personal development and growth, but learning to see see things in a more radicalized way and becoming more politically active
2: i thought when you were telling going to tell the story about um people going to the holy land you were going to say they became um kind of radically changed into what's i think known as jerusalem syndrome where people sort of snap and think that they're the messiah um, which can happen in the holy land apparently there's hospitals in the holy land that are but uh, but the, the reason i thought you were going there was because it's again it's tempting to think about ourselves as um, the helpers, right? We we are the Christ figures going into the lives of, you know, the 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 poor and the misfortunate, um, and uh, it, that, I think that's that's tempting. Um, the question that I probably um, was confronted with at some point in my life journey, um, when people ask me why am I doing the things that I want to do, um, I'd often say I want to help people. Um, you know, I want to be a, a helpful person. Um, a question that was put to me, I don't know by who or where, was, well, well, what are the others there for? Are they just sitting around so that you can help them? Is, is that their purpose in life? Or, or do they have a meaningful narrative going on themselves? Um, and I think to change that perspective, um, to, to not necessarily be um, uh, the helper, to again take up that Christ-like example, not, not to feed people, but to uh, um, eat with people. To actually take up a position of weakness. And this is one of those areas that having gone on a journey to more marginal places and returning to the church, understanding the the powerful witness of weakness. When Jesus sends out his disciples, he sends them out with nothing, with no money, no clothes. He sends them out to beg. Um, I don't know how many stories I've heard of people um, say in the movements known as uh, Urban Neighbours of Hope, um, started by Ashley Barker, um, who live in, in poorer communities throughout Australia, Southeast Asia. Um, one of the the role or one of the um, disciplines that people do in that movement is to take a vow of poverty, to, to agree to live on no more than the community lives on. And so the first thing that these missionaries, these um, uh, ministers do when they arrive into that community is they have to be needy. They have to actually ask the the people that they are hoping to serve for food, for uh, someone to do their laundry, for appliances that they can't afford. Yeah, and I think that that step to actually own our own weakness um, is an important one, lest we become uh, kind of victims of Jerusalem syndrome. Um, and and I think the the, the crucial thing in, in all of that is to realize that we don't need to look under bridges for homeless people to, to find marginalized groups. Who's the most marginal person in your family, right? Who's the person that's most pushed to the edge, that's at least talked to? Start there. Um, you know, who's the most marginalized person at your workplace? Um, start there um, and, and meet that person. Um, get them to buy you a cup of coffee, um, you know, and, and to take that position. I mean, it, it's interesting you, you say there the the importance of
0: weakness. I mean, these weakness and all of its synonyms. You know, whether you know weakness, suffering, even you can throw vulnerability. And these words are seen in I think most people's eyes, societally, to be things to be avoided. Mm. They are they are something has not gone right. If you are weak, if you are poor, if you are suffering, mm. something has not gone right. You yeah. failed the system, right? Or yeah. The, or the system failed you in one way or another. Yeah. But so what you're saying is that actually, in a very countercultural way, that's actually where, that's sometimes where the transformation exists. Uh absolutely.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I think the um, in our society we have um very much tried to avoid pain. Um, and and working cross culturally, I have to say that I've uh, that, that that isn't a common thing. Um, in all cultures. There are discourses in a number of cultures that I've come across and as I've worked in counselling that have a a word or a place for the difficult parts of life. An example that I would give was working with an Ethiopian woman and uh, one of the things that I often had to do as a counsellor was translate the concept of counselling, a a very Western modern invention um, and try to talk in in culturally relevant terms about what my place was there um, as we were talking through this we kind of went back and forth with different terms and um, the interpreter said something to this uh, woman and um, all of a sudden she kind of seemed to switch on and she said back to me which was interpreted oh so you're the person I talk to about my trials and it was the most casual thing it, it you know it was like going to a Bristol and say oh you're the person who makes my coffee um but it was just like the, a very natural thing whereas even in our culture counselors are seen to be someone that you don't want to go to that, that are to be avoided um, but then um, she explained that in her culture there was an understanding that sometime in your life you would go through what they called trials Um, And that it was understood that in that time, you would need to seek someone out who would mentor you and and help guide you through that period of life. And once she um, caught on to that, the the relationship was very clear about its purpose. I think that in our society, um, we actually try to marginalize suffering. We try to hide it away. Um, Even death isn't visible in our society. Um, it, it happens in hospitals. It happens uh, cloistered away. Um, it's it's not a public event like it is in a lot of traditional societies. And we have in the um, emerge emerging kind of sense of uh, marketing, of capitalism, we have products that are sold to increase our comfort and to get rid of our pain. And as that has risen, the church totally subconsciously, totally... Um, unaware of what it is doing, became very, very, very afraid that its product wouldn't compete in the marketplace, that people would turn to other things apart from Jesus to deal with their pain. And so we co-opted the gospel into this language. Um, these words like, you know, pray to Jesus and everything will be okay, that, you know, people are seeking, you probably heard this over Christmas somewhere, right? people are seeking comfort in food, or in material things, or even in family. But what they're really after is Jesus, right? The, the ultimate product. Um, I get angry at that now. Uh, I, I get quite angry at that. Um, I get quite angry, deeply angry, um, if I'm ever in a, a church on Good Friday and the service finishes with some well-meaning minister or lay reader or someone kind of having to quickly throw in, but it's all okay. We know that in, in three days, um, there's, there's a good ending. Mm-hmm. And I get, I think this is my one day of the year. This is my one day where I can vent, mm-hmm. where I can cathartically look upon a tortured God, a dead God, mm-hmm. where I can sit in the crap of the world, And know that God sits there with me. And you try to make it better. Mm -hmm. Right? You try to rush through the second day onto the third. And I think that that space in life, because we can't skip the second day in life. We can't rush from the pain to the emergence of something new. We have to sit through Holy Saturday Mm -hmm. in life, however long that takes. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I think in in our gospel, in our God, we have the complexity to be able to meet the phenomenon of suffering head on, and, and we sold it so cheaply.
0: Mm. Yeah, wow. I, I know that um, you did mention before, and I, I suppose every day as a counsellor, you're 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 met with stories of suffering. Um, and, and there is a view that when people suffer, it's a surprise. It's a, uh, mm. this shouldn't be happening. Yeah. Where did I go wrong? I thought I did all that right. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Particularly for our young people. Yeah. Um, a lot of my work has been with young people. If we talk about um, our generation born this millennium, they have been promised the world, right? Can you imagine any of you going to a, a high school, standing up the front and saying these words to a group of young people, you are going to die. Can you imagine the response you'd get from teachers, from parents? Right. We, um, we and,
3: actually have that problem at Ash Wednesday at some schools because yeah. you know the, um, the the traditional liturgy says "Dust you are, and dust you shall return," mm. and in most schools I've been at, we adapt that to "Jesus loves you." You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> which we're not arguing against. You know, but but but, but you know what I mean. And and I'm not I'm not suggesting that we need to um, you, you know um be bullish or insensitive mm. about such such no. deep questions of life. I mean, these are mysteries we need to be initiated into. Um, and yet at the same time, it, it just shows how, um, how bubble wrapped we have done with the generation. So as a counsellor, what I get to see um, uh, is young people who have had that bubble burst. Mm. Um, and you have to actually deal with a whole range of other life truths that they have been thrown into rather than initiated into. Yes. Um, and, and that's a, a very difficult journey and, and something that I think we've failed a generation in as, mm-hmm. as a community. I, I think
1: it's, it's multi-generational. Um, yeah. When I was training, when I was doing my CPE course towards the end of my theological training, I was based at a hospital in Sydney. And one day I walked into a ward and there was a, I went to a room and, and the lady in the bed was in traction because she had multiple um, fractures. And I approached the bed and said, um, you know, I'm, I'm a trainee um, theologue. I'm here from the chaplaincy department. And she burst into tears. And um, I thought, well, you know, I've obviously hit a button here. And, and I waited patiently and she just howled, um, he abandoned me. He abandoned me what did I do wrong God abandoned me and I got her to uh, to tell the story and she had this theology which she'd been able to sustain Mm. for 60 something years of in the morning I get up and say my prayers that God will keep me safe Mm. for 60 something years of my life I was kept safe and I didn't face any misfortune today I had a car accident and God took his hand off me And she actually was lying in bed thinking that God had abandoned her. So to add to the trauma of having her body bound to a pulp, she felt completely bereft. And I had to visit her for three weeks on a regular basis before she realized that God had had an accident and was in that bed. But she had she had been so safe, because our culture is so safe and you can be you can be sort of untroubled. Mm. She had got to her sixty something year before she had encountered the need for a God who actually suffers with us. That is, you know, and that made me realize just how many people out there that's their life because life is pretty safe for most people most of the time. Um, And how we tell the winner's story, you know, if every gold medalist, everyone that wins a Brisbane International or an Australian Open, they all say things along the lines of it just goes to show if you try hard enough, you will win. Dismisses everybody else, mm-hmm. you know, but it's only the winner's story. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed watching you know, the tennis recently that what happens is the person who comes second immediately leaves the court and disappears. Mm-hmm. And the only person that gets talked to is the winner. Mm-hmm. And that is our culture, the winner's culture, the winner's story. And the winner's story is if you try hard enough, you'll get there. And there's no mm-hmm. counter-narrative until we discover... God in the bed in traction with us.
3: I think there's an awful lot of hidden suffering that goes on too. Then I, I worked with a lot of women's groups for a while, and I coined the term domestic vi- domestic courage. Because it was the everyday courage that people were—they felt there was things they could never talk about, things that you can never share. And partly it was because they felt they were must be failing in their spiritual journey in some way because of what they were experiencing. Um, they were doing faith wrong, um, or else their thinking about their problem was wrong. They—they were—but yet the the deep psychological suffering was going on, and but they couldn't talk about it. You know, it was just something because that really—I mean—it's the M. Scott Peck. First line, you know, life is difficult Mm -hmm. from the road. You know, we haven't really got hold of. And um, to actually take hold of that and recognize that in Christian faith, we are the most embodied faith. You know, we we have an incarnational faith. God is with us. And yet that God also cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? Mm. You know, why is that permissible in Jesus and yet somehow not permissible for us to feel God forsaken, to actually experience a, a walk of God forsakenness at times in our life mm. and to, to presume that our suffering is some either our own fault and we can't talk about it um, or because of um, you know, we, we haven't had enough faith. You know?
0: I think um, for the, the younger generation now as well, as, as speaking of myself included in this, there is a real danger of social media um exacerbating a lot of this because on social media everyone presents their ideal life so if you were to scroll through your instagram feed any time of any day you will see people posting their highlights um and when that's all you're receiving you very quickly start to think that's all anyone else's life is and your your experience of your pain and your suffering and and your failures it seems to be at odds with everyone else's experience of life, which is at the beach with friends. Mm. Um, You know, like you don't, you don't see them post a picture of the night there at home on their own feeling sad about life. Do you know what I mean? They don't post that. They don't post the time then when they lose hope or the time when they break up with someone, they just post the best and that's all you see. Um, It's interesting there because I don't think like, I don't think the message here is suffering happens deal with it. I think it's almost a, a message of, I think you'd agree, Jim, that it's that similar to encountering uh, marginalized people. Yeah. Suffering also transforms you and is, and is absolutely yeah. not just necessary, but is a gift.
2: I'm not sure if I'd call it a gift or not. Um, I, I, say I, I don't want to describe suffering as, as in some way virtuous in, in and of itself. Um, it's, um, it, it can be expected, though. Right. Um, it can be expected. It, it It's a necessary part of life. Um, so i think I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that it it doesn't there there are other ways of dealing with suffering apart from avoidance um, is one of the key things. there There is also other ways of dealing with suffering other than despair, um because that's the other extreme of that, um is that, Either we avoid it, which means to say that in light of this new experience, um, I'm going to double down on what I do now. I'm going to post twice as many Instagram things to try to keep me happy. The other way to go, of course, is in, into despair, is to say um, this this is the whole of life. Um, this is all that I can expect. Um, and I mean... Christianity's had its history of, uh, while it's probably in avoidance mode at the moment of, of a despairing view of suffering, of the virtue of suffering. That um, you know, if you've um, if you haven't whipped if you haven't had a bad day today, you should whip yourself just to make sure that you are bearing in yourself the marks of the crucified Lord. Um, you know, that, that guilt-driven um, Christianity. Um, but like um, so many things in life, it, it, it's the middle way. Um, that uh, between denial and despair is transformation that, that can hold these things in common that we can change um, in my own field of um, trauma we've um, all of a sudden come to realize that along with the phenomena of what we currently in our generation call post-traumatic stress it's had other names in other generations and other cultures there's also the phenomenon of post-traumatic growth that um, in a certain percentage of people will come through the trauma saying something like this, I would never have wanted this to happen to me. The the suffering in itself isn't uh, isn't virtuous. However, I cannot imagine my life without that anymore. I cannot imagine um, what it would be like without this wisdom or this perspective or this new compassion um, that I have in my life. I'll I'll give you two very quick examples. Um, one was from, um, uh, one of my clients, um, who was an asylum seeker here in Australia who looked at our Australian politicians and they, um, made the comment of, of, as they were announcing these different policies, they said, I don't think this person has suffered enough. I don't think this person knows suffering or hasn't owned it. Um, because I, I know when I can see someone with tears in their eyes, you know, um, what I have been through in my life, being a victim of political violence, I could never do that to someone else. Yeah. Uh, a lot of soldiers can pick other soldiers without knowing them because of a look, right? The, the people that go through this have this ingrained compassion. Another example was a, a family member of mine that went through, um, a divorce, and was sitting down with me um, a few months after my own wedding um, and quite honestly talking about, um, and and with a lot of sensitivity, saying, look, I I know you've just been married and, and you've got all this going on. But he said, I don't actually think that young people know what they are promising to their spouse. And when I sat there and I said, I will love you unconditionally, no matter what, forever, I was promising to be God Right? I was promising to, to have that same depth of love as, as God would have. And they said, having, having now been through this divorce after a 20 or so year marriage, saying, I would have at that point in my life as I was making that, I would have said that anyone that gets divorced is taking the easy way out. And they said, now I can see, right? I can see for anyone who is making that decision what they have wrestled with. And I made um, the observation that while this person had failed at being God, they'd actually become more Christ-like <laughs> and more gracious. Um, and again, not that we would have wanted that to have happened, uh, as in the, 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 um, the suffering that someone went through. And yet, having sat with it, having gone through the Good Friday and the Holy Saturday, strangely enough, new things can emerge and it can be surprising as someone walking out of their own grave. Um, and and that, I think, is miraculous, right? That's something that we wouldn't expect. And yet, um, in psychology, we kind of, you know, pat ourselves on the back and say, look, we've discovered post-traumatic growth. Um, <laughs> as uh, there, there is much older um, wisdom and parable and poetry that um, has long looked at that. Yeah, wow. Well, there's plenty more we could discuss. There's so many more notes I... I
0: had but i can't think of a better place to end this conversation than uh right there on that note thank you so much peter thank you so much Sue. Thanks, and, um, thanks, Dom. thanks jim it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast oh, Absolutely,
2: wonderful opportunity thank you to you all
0: and uh, we will be back with another episode of the on the way podcast shortly